better far to be like me and do a Broadway show or three. And win a Tony Award or two and make the movie version too. In Sophie's Choice I was obscene. <laughs> and now that Big Chill is on the screen, I'll probably do the film of nine. For I am a wondrous Kevin Klein. Yes, I am a Kevin Klein. And it is, it is a glorious thing to be a Kevin Klein. I am a Kevin Klein. And it is, it is a glorious thing to be a Kevin Klein. Hurrah, oh yes, it is really fine to be a Kevin Klein. Hello and welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, March 3rd, 2024. My name is James Marino and in the broadcast today we have Michael Portantier and Jan Simpson. Michael's a theater reviewer and essayist. He's the founder and editor of castalbumreviews.com. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You could see his photography work at followspotphoto.com. Hello, Michael. Hello. Michael, we are just uh, four days away from 54 Loves Cast Albums, the second edition. Yes. How's it going? It's going well, and we um, we we unexpectedly uh, got a little extra hook uh, for publicity for our show because, as I'm sure all of our listeners know, it has just been announced that Forbidden Broadway is going to Broadway. Mm. And we have in our cast two uh members of that family the creator and director and writer gerard alessandrini will be performing along with christine petty who has who's been in the show on and off for decades so um i really very exciting uh, did we ever think that forbidden broadway was actually going to go to broadway is there going to be a forbidden forbidden broadway that makes fun of <laughs> the broadway version of forbidden broadway it's very meta it's funny. It never entered my mind. Uh, you know, I mean, if anyone had ever brought it up, I, I probably would have said, oh, that's that would be really interesting. And I probably would have said it would have to be one of the smallest theaters, which is the case. It's going to be at the Hayes, which is the smallest Broadway theater at roughly 600 seats, I believe. Uh, um, so, I don't really, yeah. I, I thought in my head that the haze was 499 exactly but is it 600 i think it was and then when they renovated it they added some more because i recently read uh somewhere that it was 600 uh that could be wrong but i did i did read that Uh, huh it has to be more than 500 it has to be 500 at least to be Uh, ibdb says 597 uh, oh, okay. DB says 597, but okay, I guess so, the, I, yeah. I guess 499 is the bottom of the Broadway production contract. I the, thought it was pro- five. Production but co- I thought it was 500, yeah. but but whatever. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, so um, I uh, Forbidden Broadway has played in theaters before, as opposed to in cabarets. It played uh, mm-hmm. on 47th Street um, for a while at the the what was originally called the the Puerto Rican Traveling Theater? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Mm-hmm. 
and um and there was a theater that it played in on the east side i remember but um yeah. but mm-hmm. uh so you know for the, often it has played in cabarets uh and some people feel it helps if you have a drink in you <laughs> mm. just because of the type of humor, you know, but, uh, you know, I'm, hopefully there'll be a bar at the haze <laughs> and people can indulge if they want to. But it's really, really exciting news. Um, just sort of a somebody said coming full circle, which is not really correct because it didn't start on Broadway, but in the in terms of how Broadway inspired it to begin with, and mm-hmm. and another neat thing is that um, one of the very first targets of Forbidden Broadway was Merrily We Roll Along, the original Merrily We Roll Along, to the point where the the cover art on the first cast album of Forbidden Broadway is a spoof of the cover art of <laughs> the original Merrily Roll Along, Merrily We Roll Along, with the three people on the on the rooftop. And so now uh, Forbidden Broadway is coming to Broadway and Merrily We Roll Along is back on Broadway (laughs) and is now a big hit when it was originally a huge flop. So it's kind of neat, isn't it? (laughs) It is. And we talked last week uh, about Second Stage and the haze and the closing of the Second Stage uh, Theater. And uh, I made a repeated error last week where I kept on saying it was on 44th Street, and obviously it's on 43rd Street and 8th Avenue, not 44th and 8th. Uh, Apologies about that, and thank you all for letting uh, me know that. Um, Also, that's uh, I don't know if we ever even mentioned the name, but they've been calling that the Tony Kaiser Theater. And that brings up an interesting point. Um, You know, presumably Mr. Kaiser or his his estate or someone uh, gave money for that to happen. And now there will be no more Tony Kaiser Theater, at least not that one. Uh, I wonder what how they will honor him in future and and on a related note um it's no secret that uh second stage has been shopping around to try to find a naming donor for the Hayes. peter is in st louis today uh and a speaking engagement so he's not with us but in his stead we have jan simpson jan is a theater journalist who writes the blog broadway and me and hosts the broadway radio podcasts stage crash stagecraft and all the drama she has twice served as a pulitzer prize juror hello jan how are you i'm fine and it's great to be back with you guys it's been a while i know it's a i was we were looking back it's been september or so six months since in those last six months we've had a number of uh, all the drama episodes and stagecraft episodes and uh, the newest one next to normal was released to our patreon listeners uh, earlier this week and will be available to the public next week. So uh, next to normal, you talk to our friend Peter Marks. Yes, yes. Um, next to normal is an interesting Pulitzer winner because uh, the Pulitzer jury did not nominate it. Uh, the Pulitzer board uh, overruled the choices that the jury submitted to it and uh, named Next to Normal its winner all on its own. So it's an interesting, it has an interesting backstory. I don't, I don't want to embarrass you, Jan, but I, I love your podcasts. Oh, thank They're you. just wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so uh, speaking of Peter Marks, uh, mm-hmm. I forgot to mention this. I saw a, an ad for someone to replace him 
Yeah, oh, yeah, the Washington the- Post, uh, jur- uh, uh, lead lead critic reviewer at the Washington Post um, is there is an a job posting for it, and actually uh, Peter Marks was retweeting it and promoting it on social media, looking for the next generation of reviewers to work at the Washington Post, and so. Uh, if anybody out there is interested in that thing, I'll throw the link to that in the show notes so that you can check it out. That's great uh, news. Fascinating. Yeah. That's well, I mean, news. it's so interesting to me that, if, uh, first of all, do they normally do it that way, uh, just with a public job posting like that? And secondly, that he uh, would would send it around. That's really mm. big of him, you know. Oh, he's a good guy. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think that he left under his own terms there. You know, uh, he felt that it was time to transition. Oh, see, I didn't, I didn't realize that. To do something else. Uh, you know, the Washington Post offered them generous buyouts, and he said maybe it's just a good time for him to transition. Okay. So, uh, you know, and as uh, uh, Jan pointed out in her her talk with Peter on Next to Normal on all the drama, uh, he has his uh, his own thing with uh, Marks and Vincentelli, uh, their own podcast with Elizabeth Vincentelli, and talk about theater, and it's really wonderful. So check it out on the Substack Substack as platform as well. Yeah, and he's also uh, at least so far he's loving his retirement. Yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, uh, straight from the horse's mouth. He said mm. he was really loving his retirement. So. Mm. Yeah, he got out right in time before this <laughs> April. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> this April's, you know, bloodbath for reviewers and, and, and voting members. And yeah. Jan, you, you vote in multiple organizations. So you yeah. have three, to- three times the number of shows to see that we do. <laughs> so you have to go see it once for each organization, right? You know? If that were so, I would be even deader than I'm going to be yeah. in April. But anyway. <laughs> oh, Mary. So, Jan, uh, you got over to the lower tail to see Oh, Mary. So tell us what you think about this this production. Well, it was a surprise to me because uh, this, as people probably know and and may remember from Peter's conversation about it last week, this is uh, Cole Escola's, I call it bizarro world, look at the week in the life of Mary Todd Lincoln um, leading up to the assassination of her husband. Uh, Cola Scola, who is a non-binary performer, uh, plays uh, Mary Todd Lincoln. It's, uh, I don't always love that kind of high camp approach uh, to, to theater. So I wasn't sure what I was going to feel. And he is, or they are so delightful and so delightfully funny and so uh, do anything, and I mean just about anything, for a laugh um, that I was totally won over by it. It's, uh, I think, shaping up to be the show of the season, at least the Off-Broadway downtown show of the season. Uh, he, it's a five-person show. 
Um, uh, Conrad Ricamora plays uh, Abe Lincoln. It is very, very funny. It is. <laughs> it's. It's hard. It's hard to resist this this show. Uh, and I'm not a person. Uh, people. I often feel badly for people who are at comedies who are sitting around me because I'm just not a laugh out loud person. I just. I just don't. Well, I did. Um, on at this one, it's uh, it's just a really charming and smart uh, uh, show. It's not it's it's also a, a tidy, I think, about eighty minute show, uh, so it doesn't wear out. It's it's welcome, and just uh, uh, he uh, Escola also wrote it, and uh, is a very very witty playwright as well as a very, very funny performer. So uh, I totally recommend this one if you can get a ticket. I mentioned last week, but I didn't get all my facts straight. I, I have not yet seen this show or ever seen Cole Escola on stage, but he and Jeffrey Self made one of the funniest videos I've ever seen in my life, and it's still on YouTube. This was back when... Um, there was the controversy about gay marriage in California and Proposition 8 and how um, the state started issuing marriage licenses uh, to gay couples, and then they stopped, and then they started again. Uh, well, this is when um, that was finally decided that uh, same-sex marriage was legal in California. And so um, I didn't – I hadn't – describe the setup of the video correctly but the payoff is is the same in either case what what happens is it starts with the two of them talking to the camera and they're very happy because um you know this decision has just been made and gay marriage is now legal in california and cole says and because of that jeffrey and i are going to get married next week and as he happens to be saying that jeffrey just happens to be drinking a glass of water and he does a spit take and then you see um an edit and then uh jeffrey says i'm sorry there was some misunderstanding we're not getting married and cole is sitting there with a very upset expression on his face so when i read um that cole scolo is going to be uh in this show and uh he uh you t t say is he credited as writer or co-writer mm -hmm. yeah um i thought to myself oh this is something that's really going to be worth catching and sure enough it's turned into a um uh what you say a viral hit it's it's uh it's really um attracted a lot of attention and has been extended and who knows what the future is for it so we'll see i, I i'm not sure how much uh of uh, wishing makes it so will transfer to Broadway, but we will see if this uh, will make a transfer to Broadway or a different or a larger off Broadway house, or we'll see what happens with this. But it doesn't strike me as a Broadway show. Yeah, that's the, yeah. But uh, I could see it playing for a long time at a larger uh, off in a larger off Broadway house. Uh, Maybe um, New World Stages. I was yeah, thinking it would be, yeah, it would mm -hmm. be. It would be a, a good match there. So uh, that is O'Mary. It's playing at the Lortel. It's uh, now playing through May 5th, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. So the three of us got a chance to see Jason Robert Brown's new show, The Connector. 
uh, Peter has talked about it previously. So, uh, Michael, why don't you get us started on the connector? I really liked it. I just saw it last night, so it's fresh in my mind. Um, I think the most amazing thing about it is how Jason Robert Brown, with his music and lyrics, was able to make this story sing, which um, I would think would have been quite difficult given the subject matter, which in a nutshell is um, it's based on several true stories where – writers, uh, nonfiction writers for magazines or newspapers um, turned out to be frauds. Uh, And it turned out that they were fictionalizing and making up um, many elements or sometimes the entire stories that they were writing. Uh, And that's a, you know, I mean, I find that a fascinating, very, very interesting subject, but I, I don't know if you would immediately think of it for a musical. Um, so I was amazed from the opening number uh, how Jason Robert Brown managed to write songs that uh, with really great lyrics, really sharp lyrics that moved the show along and, and really uh, were very apropos to the subject. I mean, there aren't any um, there's no there's really no love song in this, sh- in this show uh, that I can remember. Uh, and they're not singing about things that people normally sing about in musicals. So I think if, if if someone else had tried to do the same thing, uh, if some other writer or team of writers had tried to do the same thing, I think it would have been, it might've been a disaster, but I, I was amazed at how well it was done here and credit also to, um, well, certainly to Jonathan Mark Sherman for the book and Daisy Prince for the uh, the uh, she it, she's con- um, built as conceived and directed by Daisy Prince, um, so I guess it was her idea to begin with, and choreography by Carla Puno Garcia. Um, and this is at MCC Theater, their new space on fifty Far West Fifty Second Street, uh, with a really great cast. Um, it's great to see Scott Bakula and. Uh, also Jessica Malaski um back on stage in in music in a musical um they were really oh and Daniel Jenkins uh just really nice to see these old friends but also uh people who are new to me uh most definitely including um Ben Levy Ross in these pivotal role, the central role of Ethan Dobson. He's the young hotshot writer who they're all kowtowing to uh, in the beginning. And it seems like he basically comes in and owns the place because his stories are so popular. And um, he's got fans writing in about his his stories, his, know, how wonderful they are. And then, you know, slowly, slowly little by little it all starts to unravel and that's interesting in the way that that happens as well um so i i thought it was quite a triumph um because uh, and it i would say that it it really expands the art form in terms of um someone having been able to write it excellent musical about subject matter that we would not normally think about for a musical Hmm. Okay. So Jan, what'd you think about this? I didn't like it at all. Hmm? Really? Okay. Not tell us about all. it. Um, 
I obviously do not know or pretend to know as much about music as uh, Michael does, but there was nothing memorable about the score to me. When I left the theater, I didn't remember anything about the music just by the time I got out to the curb. So um, I also found that the biggest production numbers had really nothing to do with the plot. They were uh, musicalizations of the stories that this young journalist was telling. And they were the biggest, most crowd-pleasing, most uh, maybe inventive uh, numbers. But if they had been taken out of the show, they wouldn't have been missed. And the main characters in the show were not part of those numbers. Um, There's a number at the Wailing Wall Mm. that uh, is reminiscent, if you will, of Fiddler on the Roof. Um, There's a rap number that really does not work. Uh, So the, the music just didn't do it for me. And the story, uh, this was a, a story. This was one of the shows that I was most looking forward to uh, this season um, because I'm a big JRB fan. Um, I, I, I'm one of those people who loved Parade in the old days. Um, <laughs> I, I, and I can never get enough of seeing the last five years. Um, and this was a subject that was close to my heart because it's about journalism. And I spent um, my entire career in journal in journalism. Uh, this show, to me, the the book uh, was just too sketchy. Um, we don't know why this kid does this. There's no motivation for him. And the editor um, is sort of uh, portrayed in a way, to me, as sort of a knucklehead. Um, he's just promoting this guy because he likes him and he reminds him of himself. Um, th- that's not what happened in the real world in those cases that uh, prompted Daisy Prince to want to uh, make a musical about uh, this subject. And it just uh, throwing, it also throws in a story about uh, a young writer who's um, a Latina, who's Puerto Rican, and she's not getting the same opportunities as the uh, this this guy. That's an interesting idea. It's never really fully developed. This just didn't work for me on on any front. Uh, the performances I thought were good, um, but for me, no. All right. Um, <laughs> I have seen very mixed responses to the show elsewhere, so I guess we're a microcosm of that. <laughs> but also, I can see, you know, I mean, all of your criticisms make sense to me. Um, the thing about not knowing his motivation. I guess that just didn't matter to me. 
because the point is he did it. I mean, there are lots of reasons why people might want to make up the story like that. Uh, and I guess, um, you know, if they had said, well, he had a horrible childhood and he was trying to escape from it. I, you know, I'm, I'm not sure that. <laughs> no, that- I don't mean in that sense. I mean, in the sense of um, the guys who Jonathan Glass, I think that's his name, um, who was at the, the, the New Republic. Right, right. Um, he really wanted uh, he was he was an insecure person. This kid does not come off as insecure when he comes on the stage. He's really <laughs> cocky. He's really full can of I, himself. Can I uh, interrupt for a second? Please. I, I, I summarized uh, uh, the the connector into, I boiled it down to one sentence. I was mm-hmm. like, Dear Evan Hansen, after college with, uh, with confidence. <laughs> <laughs> Hmm. He basically lied his way through just like Evan Hansen did. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He had the success that got out ahead of him and he couldn't and it, and it destroyed his life. Yes. Uh and you know he, he, they did it for 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 all sorts of uh you know everybody each character had their own agenda. Mm. Uh and they were were trying to uh, get to it, but I, I, I think that that is why uh, I'm not sure that anybody really loved any one of these characters. And well, it, yeah, and how you react to him is as see that that's so interesting. What Jan said, I, I mean, I to me, he came across as very confident, but in a very affected way, like he was perf- very performative. And to me, I sensed um, that there was something wrong there from the beginning. Now, I mean, maybe that's probably because I knew the story, <laughs> how it was going to turn out. But um, you could look at it, and that's how you could argue that in the real-life situations, something similar probably happened. You know, some people reacted to these people uh, – Daniel Daniel Glass or what's his name Jonathan Glass Daniel. I can't remember <laughs> um, and Jason Blair uh you yeah. know some people mm-hmm. reacted to them as oh you know he's great and he's so confident and blah 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 and others maybe looked you know tried to see if there were chinks in the armor and there was something else going on underneath um so I think that actually the our different reactions to this show I think maybe speak partly to that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, what did you think, uh, James? Did you like it? Well, <laughs> I I actually liked the second half of it. It, it it's done in one 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 act. Right. I like. I felt like it started very slow, and I was like, "Oh, what is going on here?" It's all meandering. But it, it's such a Jason Robert Brown thing to spend a lot of time setting up the pins to knock them down in the second half. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really loved the second half, but the, uh, the, the first half I felt like it was meandering and, and, uh, and I really loved, uh, the, you know, while it, the music was tremendously diverse, I really loved the music. I loved the Western wall and I definitely Definitely kept on thinking of the fiddler on the roof, especially with the choreography. 
Um, and uh, so I, you know, I, I'm a huge fan of Jason. I, I've always been a huge fan of Jason. <laughs> and, but I think that the, you know, the books keep on coming up short uh, for Jason Robert Brown shows. So you would uh, put it more on the book for this show? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I would put it on the book. I mean, um, I don't, I don't, it, as much as I have been watching and been involved with theater for so long, I still, uh, the, the mythology around directors is just, uh, I, I don't know if it's a director's problem or a book problem. I'm assuming it's a book problem here. Uh, so uh, maybe it could be a director's problem. I, I just don't think that everything is up to supporting the music. Uh, you know, I, I feel like the music is far better than the show itself. So. I think that there were great, uh, great hopes for this show. And then uh, for what it's worth, the New York Times review turned out to be very mixed uh sort of like us that yeah (laughs) (laughs) sort of like um and i think that was i'm i'm thinking that was maybe a shock to them uh so Mm. uh whatever i uh i i guess i just had a overall far more positive reaction than some other people but um Mm. i and i did I'm, i'm surprised um james you didn't like the opening number i thought that was really quite energetic mm. and, and really good and got the job done but but whatever whatever you know uh i was having a problem following the lyrics in the opening number and oh, maybe well, that it could was be a, a problem yeah <laughs> maybe it was a sound issue maybe it, you know I, I i'm not i'm not really sure i mean the theater's not that big yeah uh the i did not, not have that... a problem but that would obviously work against it yeah if you couldn't understand uh uh you know i was uh i i I would say I got more than the gist of it, but you know, Jason's lyrics are like Sondheim's lyrics. You really have to, uh, there's a lot of inner, uh, meaning to the lyrics. So you can't just get the gist of it. You have to hear everything. And so again, maybe it's, uh, was not the thing, but, um, and I did turn to my friend, uh, somewhere in the middle of it, uh, and said of the, central character he's very dear evan hansen uh and when yeah. i said that i didn't even know that ben levy ross had played dear evan hansen <laughs> yeah so, um, so uh yeah so that's the connector i i you know i hope it's not the end of it i hope that there's a cast recording did you know if anybody's made an announcement of a cast recording for this uh paul witty in our chat room uh let us know that uh, Jason Robert Brown's The Connector is going to get a cash recording. It's going to be released by Concord Theatrical in the ah. spring. Next up, Jan and Michael saw the seven year disappear at New Group. So, Jan, tell us uh, about seven year. Oh, I'm going to s- seem like Debbie Downer today. Um, <laughs> well, I'll join you on this one. <laughs> <laughs> this uh, is. Um, a play about uh, I'm trying to um, get the uh, name of the the playwright. Jordan Seavey is the name of the playwright. Uh, it's uh, directed by Scott Elliott, 
uh, of the new group. And it stars Cynthia Nixon and Taylor Trench. It's a two-hander, and it's about a mother and son. The mother is a performance artist in the style of uh, Marina Abramovic. Uh, actually, the play opens when the audience is allowed into the theater. They are sitting uh, on stage already, and they are sitting on stage in a way that calls to mind uh, Abramovic's probably most famous uh, piece where she sat, uh, I think, in the lobby. I didn't go see it, of the Museum of Modern Art. And people would come, would take turns sitting in a chair and just mm-hmm. staring at her and she's staring at them. And that's the image when we come into the theater of this mother and son. Uh, she makes it clear right uh, at the beginning, once the play gets going, that she's a fictional uh competitor, rival of Marina Abramovic's. And she doesn't think a lot of Abramovic's work. She thinks her work is much better. This son she's raised is also her manager. And he has finally arranged for her to have a show of her work at the Museum of Modern Art. And there's going to be this big announcement made and she fails to show up for the announcement and, hello, disappears for seven years. Hence the title, Seven Year Disappear. And then she returns and the play is about her return, his relationship uh, to his mother, to the people in his mother's uh, life, to his attempt to forge a life for himself. The idea of um, a play about the fallout, the repercussions on the children of famous people or people who are extremely committed to their work is really interesting to me. Uh, I've read as many books about it as I can find, both fictional and nonfiction. Um, this play just falls down uh, in really seriously probing that theme. I can see why Cynthia Nixon was attracted to it because she plays all of the other people in the play, in addition to playing uh, the mother. They never uh, really fully leave the stage or change their costumes in any way. They're they're dressed in what looks like overalls, Hmm. uh, like moving, like the sort of clothes that moving guys wear. Um, And I can see where it was a fun challenge for her, where she gets to play guys, where she gets to adapt different accents and 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 so on. But the play just goes nowhere. And it just well, it just didn't work for me. I'm I'm eager to hear what you thought, Michael. <laughs> 
Well, I think maybe if that was the aspect of the play that attracted Cynthia Nixon to it, that's interesting because I think that's the downfall of the play. Uh, the whole point of it is that this woman is absent for seven years. Uh, I mean, at a, at a pivotal moment in in her life and career, and just leaving her son, uh, you know, adrift when she's supposed to be there. But um, we got no sense of her being absent because she was on stage all the time playing all these other characters. Now, you, of course, you could say if she's playing other characters, she's not playing the mother, but Cynthia Nixon as a presence is almost constantly on stage. And I certainly thought, uh, I mean, I hate to be too literal, but I thought it would have been a better play if she only appeared in the scenes where she was supposed to be playing the artist, Miriam, uh, and all the other roles had been played by other actors. Uh, I can only assume that the play is written uh, for Miriam, uh, whoever's playing Miriam, to play all of the other characters. Well, okay, yeah. So it wasn't a directorial conceit. Um, No, it's written that way. And that's what the so that's what Jordan CV, the playwright, wanted. But I, um, I, does that make any sense? What I'm saying? uh, Yeah, but I think what he was trying to get across is that even in her absence, Miriam haunts her son. He sees her everywhere. She and so the fact that the the actress playing Miriam plays all of these other characters means that even in her absence, her son can't escape from her. I'm sure you're right about that. And uh, at least one of the reviews that I read said the same thing. To me, it would have been more effective to actually have that character absent a lot. Uh, I I always think that's effective um, in the few times it happens in plays and musicals where a, a character goes away and that we don't see them for a long time and then they come back and it can be really effective when that happens. Of course, it would have been a much smaller role and therefore maybe not interesting enough to Cynthia Nixon. <laughs> uh, so, but whatever, that, 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 that was what I thought, uh, for what it's worth. Um, the uh, staging of the show, which I did not like at all by Scott Elliott, I, I assume it's supposed to be uh, almost a parody of performance art. Uh, there are very odd staging techniques. Uh, a lot of the mm. time, the two actors, um, the only two actors in the play, will sit at opposite ends of a long table um, looking at each other and not moving and talking to each other. Sometimes they use um, hand mics. Sometimes they use standing mics. Sometimes they use body mics. Um, There's lots of video in the show. Uh, Apparently uh, some live and some pre-recorded, if I understand correctly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so we see their faces uh, projected very large on screens around the stage. But um, a weird thing there, and I guess this was on purpose, maybe, is that sometimes it's not framed properly. So we don't see both. We see like half of someone's face (laughs) at the left side of the screen and half of the other person's face on the other side. Um, So either that was just ineptitude or uh, supposed to mean something that I don't I don't get. Um, 
the as you mentioned chan uh the to me they look like black jumpsuits uh that the two actors wore throughout so there was no sense of uh delineate delineating delineating the other <laughs> characters um through costuming certainly uh which makes sense if cynthia nixon was going to be playing all those characters anyway uh sometimes um oh yeah so again uh the staging seemed like a parody of performance art but it wasn't amusing in any way and to me you know satire without humor i'm not sure where that leaves us <laughs> um I, I i just thought it was silly uh mm-hmm. is, is how it all came across to me um some weird moments in the play uh the the son's name by the way is naftali that's yes. how they pronounce it. Mm-hmm. Um, and he is, uh, you know, we know from the beginning that he's gay. He's obviously mm-hmm. gay. And uh, towards the beginning of the show, he, uh, in one of his many conversations with his mother, he says, I, Mom, I have something to tell you. And she says, oh, no, do you have HIV? And the audience laughed. And I was I- like, why is the audience laughing at that? Uh I guess maybe there was something really bad in that in those line readings or the direction, but I a chill kind of went through me when the audience laughed at the suggestion that he might have HIV. Um, so I don't know what that moment was about, but I I really didn't like it. Um, and I think the situation uh, of the play and the characters are interesting overall, but basically done in. Um, by the direction and the way that the playwright handled it. Um, so that's my take. On well, that doesn't leave us with very much. <laughs> what, 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 what doesn't? Well, if we don't like the writing and we don't like the direction. <laughs> no, as I said, I, I, I like the concept of it. I mean, I think that's an interesting subject matter yes. that, uh, you know, that this famous performance artist might have this son that she has a very conflicted relationship with. And he's also her, uh, I guess they actually call her, her, her manager. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah. So she's, he's deeply involved in her life and her career. And then she stages this disappearing act. And I, you know, I, I find that an interesting subject to begin with, but I just don't think that they handled it well. So that's uh, the seven-year disappear at, at New Group. It's uh, playing at Signature, and it's uh, playing through March 24th, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. All right, so uh, next up, Jan, you saw The Hunt at St. Anne's Warehouse. Uh, so tell us about The Hunt. The Hunt uh, is a import from uh, the Almeida Theater in uh, London. It was done there in 2019, and I imagine it would have come here sooner, uh, except for the pandemic. It's based on uh, a 2012 film by the Danish filmmaker Thomas Vinterberg. And it's a story about a divorced guy who lives in a rural community um it's it in the film it's it's not an unsophisticated community but it's a rural community where people uh everyone knows one another uh fathers take their sons out to hunt of uh, that kind of uh 
environment. And he, as I said, was recently divorced and the local high school where he was a teacher has closed and he is now, uh, it, it, the high school students are, I guess, bust out to another, uh, community and he's now working as a kindergarten teacher and he seems quite happy, quite content. The kids seem to love him. And then one little girl, uh, tells her, the principal of the school that he has exposed himself to her. And at the beginning of the, the film and of the play that the film is based on, we see that this is not what happened. She made, she has a little bit of a crush on him and she makes a present for him and then attempts to kiss him. And he moves away. He tells her she should give the present to someone in her class, someone her own age who's a friend, and that the kind of kissing that she does is something only adults should do. So we know this is, he has not in any way molested this child. He's actually handled the situation well, but she, in her disappointment and in her childish anger, she tells the principal that he exposed himself to her. And the community just rises up against him to the point that he's in danger of uh, people beating, not in danger of people beating him up. People beat him up. He's in danger of uh, someone killing him. Other children start giving reports that he also molested them. And what turns it around in the movie, the movie was, you know, done 12 years ago. So total spoiler here is that the children start talking about how he took them to his basement and molested them there. There is no basement in his home. His home has no basement. And so when the police go to investigate this place, they had already arrested him. They release him. And the rest of the film is about how then the uh, community deals with his release, their reaction and it's a very it's a it's a very non-sentimental film it's very subtle in its storytelling and it's very affecting we don't get a lot of film uh, a lot of plays that are based on films we get musicals that are based on films so this was unusual um it's directed by Rupert Gould who, whose work we've seen before here and it's starring Tobias Menzies. And I think right now he's best known as playing Prince Philip uh, to Olivia Coleman's Queen Elizabeth in uh, The Crown, the TV, the Netflix uh, series, The Crown. And he's very effective in the role, but I don't know, maybe to put his mark on the, on, on the play, uh, Gould really heightens 
everything. And so the subtlety, the subtle way that Vinterberg told the tale is, 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 is not there at all. And Gould makes some changes that really tilt the show in a different way. And the, the, the really telling example is right at the beginning. In the beginning of the film, uh, the teacher's name is Lucas. Lucas and his buddies uh, are, are out at the local lake. And the guys are daring one another to drive in, uh, dive into the lake naked. It's frigid. It's really cold. And so they're showing how macho they are by jumping into the lake. And one of the guys jumps in and he develops a cramp and he seems to be in danger of drowning. And Lucas dives in. He's fully dressed. He dives in and saves the guy and brings him to uh, dry land. In the play, what begins is the men are, uh, uh, and it's about five or six men. They're, they're bare chested. They're beating their chest. They're stomping around the stage. They're chanting. It almost seems like some primitive ritual. Um, I understand they couldn't, you know, replicate the swimming on stage, but their macho-ness has really been amped up. And most tellingly, Lucas is nowhere to be seen. And so the whole idea of how this community ostracizes him and then tries to deal with bringing him back in is undermined at the very beginning because he's already an outsider. What When they're engaging in their mm. ritual together, he's not there. And mm. that really tilts it and distorts it. There are characters who are sympathetic to Lucas in the uh, film. Uh, they're taken out um uh in 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 this in this play version uh it it just seems to hammer home uh this idea and it's also for me it was a little uncomfortable watching it because when the film was made was before we had all of the revelations about Harvey Weinstein and others who had, you know, demonstrated really predatory behavior. And now um, we believe, uh, we're told to believe when people make accusations. And this is a whole show that's built around false accusations and how uh, these kinds of accusations can ruin a man's life. So it seemed just a little uh, out of step. The production is well done. The acting is very good. The children who are in the play are extremely good. Just extremely phenomenal. There's a live dog. People in the audience seem to love the fact that there's a live dog <laughs> on uh, on stage who plays Lucas's dog. Um, but it's uh, 
it, it, it seemed to me Gould was indulging himself too much and putting too much his mark on a story that uh, was already uh, uh, a good, solid story. So I, I'm I'm sort of equivocal about it. You know, be, between between the lies and the house with no basement, it's sort of like a QAnon meets the children's hour. You know, yes. with uh, yes. Hillary Clinton's pizza parlor with no basement, and it's uh, a, it's 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 kind of a it's just kind of an odd duck of a play uh, right now. But again, visually, there are some just incredible visual uh, images, and uh, a lot of people who listen to this will know the uh, set designer S. Devlin. She's very mm. famous for her. Uh, chic uh sets and she's designed a very smart uh set here it's a glass house and it uh stands in for the schoolhouse the church where they all go the lodge where the men uh hang out and at times the lighting um turns the glass walls of the house really opaque and so we can't see really what's going on and that also sort of symbolizes um the sort of short-sightedness if you will of the townspeople as well so there's some and some of the chant chanting um there's there there is a lot of ritualistic stuff that goes on in this production that is not in the film the film is very naturalistic there's a lot of uh expressionistic stuff that goes on that that is uh really visually impressive so it's it's a it's an interesting experience um and maybe i just shouldn't have watched the film as mm-hmm. Devlin <laughs> uh, represented on Broadway in uh, Machinal, American Psycho, and the Lehman Trilogy, for which she won a Tony Award for scenic design. Yeah, I would. I have. I haven't seen this play, but the one thing I would say is, uh, though, although I think we all hope that it happens very, very rarely. The unfortunately, there are times when there are false accusations. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I mean, sure. I think that's really important to know that there's been so many examples. The famous McMartin. Um, I was going to say this school. Yes, this yeah. harkens yeah. back very much um, uh, 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 to that. Right. Um, and I think, again, at the time that the film came out, that would have been foremost even though it was it was a Danish film, that experience, the McMartin experience, would have been foremost in people's minds. Um, and now it just seems out of step. And that is not to say that there are not occasionally um, false accusations. Well, because it, it can just, happen anytime. You know, I mean, it could happen now, even in the midst of things like. <laughs> all of the real horrible accusations the the real stuff that's happening that's that's true but it still felt uncomfortable for me sitting there seeing um a whole 
show um, and the destruction of a man's life uh, drafted around, um, centered around this false accusation. Just did. All right. For the last review of the morning, uh, Jan, you saw Sunset Baby at Signature Theater uh, at the New York Signature Theater, Ramulus Linney Courtyard Theater. (laughs) And uh, we have to be specific with the signature down in D.C. and Virginia. Uh, So tell us about Sunset Baby. This is a play uh, that that is part of Dominique Mariso's residency at Signature. It is a revival of her first play, and it is a play about uh, the relationship between a former Black revolutionary who uh, was arrested for um, trying to rob a Brinks truck and spent many years in prison. And he is not now trying to reconnect with his grown daughter who has gone in a very different direction um she's she works with her boyfriend where they uh rob drug dealers and um use the money for themselves they are not trying to uh, improve uh, conditions in the way that the father did. The idea of the uh, of um, what again, it's sort of similar uh, to the seven year disappear in that the idea of what the behavior of parents and parents who are dedicated to a particular cause, what effect that has on their children is, uh, again, really interesting to me. The performers here are really excellent. Uh, Russell uh, Hornsby plays the uh, father. Moses Ingram, uh, uh, who is a woman, um, uh, and people may know her, people who follow Star Wars. I believe she's in the Star Wars uh, world. I see that um, Rob Johnston has just reminded me that uh, Moses Ingram was in The Queen's Gambit and that she also plays a bad guy in the uh, series Obi-Wan Kenobi. And J. Alphonse Nicholson, who's done a lot of work on New Year's, uh, on New York stages, uh, plays, uh, her boyfriend. They are all excellent. The production is a very good production, but this is, uh, Dominique's at least one of her first plays. And so it's, it's not as strong as the work that we've, uh, come to, uh, appreciate appreciate uh, her doing, but um, it's worthwhile seeing. It's worthwhile seeing, in particular, if you're a, a completist. Um, uh, yeah, so I think I'll, 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 just, I'll just leave it there. It is, I think, something we're seeing. And, and as people can now probably tell, this theme of, of parents and children um, is fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that we're seeing so many uh, shows that are playing uh, with this theme. All right. That's Sunset Baby at Signature. Uh, it's playing through March 10th, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. All right. So that wraps it up for this week. Before we get on to the brain teaser and the musical moment, I want to 
want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of broadwayradio.com. There's a subscribe link that we each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to get us an Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to get us. Uh, Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Broadway Radio is one way that you can get all of our broadcasts early, plus be able to support all of Broadway Radio's offerings. Uh, contact information for Jan, for Michael, and for me can be found on the show notes at broadwayradio.com, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today. So let's throw it over to Peter for a second to say hello to us and get this week's brain teaser. So Peter, we're really, really sad that we don't get to talk to you this week because I heard... Yeah, you're going to be uh, honored by the Theater World Awards. Uh, yeah, um, it was a very nice thing that uh, Dale Badway, the producer, uh, suggested because um, <laughs> I've been doing it for quite a century now. So uh, it it added up. So <laughs> anyway, uh, yes, I've, I've been very happy at how many nice people have said so many nice things and have gotten in touch with me um, to to say congratulations. So I'm very grateful. Oh, that's wonderful. So, do you have an answer to last week's brain teaser? Uh-huh. Many assume that Cynthia Nixon was the first and only performer to appear in two shows on the same night. In 1984, she was in the first and third acts of Hurley Burley and the second act of The Real Thing, so she had to travel two blocks between theaters each night. But a very different female performer did this many decades before Cynthia. We know her best from a famous Tony Losing musical, whose title actually is part of the title of one of the two shows in which she appeared nightly. Well, we're talking about Ethel Chute, who sang Broadway Baby in Follies in 1971. She was in the Ziegfeld Follies of 1925 at the New Amsterdam at 8.30 p.m., but then she'd be transported to the Cosmopolitan Theater at Columbus Circle by 9.55 to appear for five minutes in Louis Fourteenth. By the way, Louis Fourteenth was not about the king. Louis Fourteenth dealt with a woman who was having a dinner party. She realized at the last moment that she had invited 13 people, and 13 is unlucky. So she called her friend Louis and said, come on over. So he was Louis the Fourteenth. Anyway, at 10 o'clock, Ethel would leave the Cosmopolitan and be transported in a specially police vehicle down to the New Amsterdam Theater, where she'd go on in the Ziegfeld Follies at 10, 10 p.m. Then she'd return to the Cosmopolitan at 10.30 to continue in Louis the Fourteenth. Pretty amazing. Paul Whitty returned to the fold and was the first to get it. Followed by Juliet Green, Tony Janicki, Sean Logan, and Brigadood. This week's question. Some musicals get unfortunate nicknames. The Red Shoes, with Julie Stein's final score, was known as Julie's Last Jam. Such spoofy nicknames are usually reserved for big flops. But there's one that was foisted on a successful production. That nickname just happens to be the actual name of a 1940s film that was based on a story with a different title from the film. The original story's hero was a famous fictional lawyer who would later be seen as the title character in not one, 
not two, but three different TV series. What's the name of the film, which is also the disparaging name given the successful production? And who's the famous fictional lawyer? Okay. If you have an answer for this, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So, Michael, what do we have in this week's musical moment? Well, before we get to that, I just wanted to mention, uh, look in the show notes because we found something really special on YouTube. It's an audio recording of Bob Fosse rehearsing Liza Minnelli in Chicago. And it's, I think the recording is about 80 minutes long. It's absolutely incredibly fascinating. You can hear, clearly hear Fosse and Minnelli and Jerry Orbach and Cheetah Rivera and everyone else. And it's uh, a real amazing peek behind the scenes uh, with remarkable audio clarity, by the way. So um, that's not the kind of thing that turns up every day. So check that out. Uh, but to our musical moments, I, I tried, I thought there was kind of um, neat connections for both of them uh, this week. Uh, our opener is uh, from the first cast album that Forbidden Broadway ever made. Um, and it's Gerard Alessandrini as Kevin Klein in the Pirates of Penzance. And I thought that was appropriate because, uh, first of all, as we noted, Forbidden Broadway is going to make its very exciting Broadway debut this summer. Uh, and also Gerard is going to be in my 54 Loves cast album show at 54 Below this coming Thursday. Um, Gerard was originally a, a member of Forbidden Broadway. Uh, in fact, the, when the show first started, it was only, uh, the only two performers were Gerard and Nora Mae Ling. And then it sort of quickly expanded to four people and then it went on. But Gerard stopped performing in it fairly early on uh, to focus on writing the lyrics and directing. And uh, so, and then he only really made guest appearances um on very rare occasions over the next few decades so whenever he actually appears to do a number from forbidden broadway i, I think it's really kind of special so we're looking for that uh, forward to that on thursday and then our closer um this is a kind of a a neat um coincidence i think uh our closer features riri grist who uh went on to be a great opera singer, but her first notoriety came when she sang Somewhere, the song Somewhere, in the original Broadway cast of West Side Story. Uh, I think she was maybe 17 or 18 at the time. She was very young. And she introduced that incredibly beautiful, immortal song. Uh, but the thing is that Riri, Gross, Riri, Riri Grist was born on February 29th in leap year in 1932. So although she's 82 years old, the birthday she celebrated last week was actually her 20th birthday. <laughs> and of course, all of that fits in with Pirates of Penzance, <laughs> which mm -hmm. is the whole, the whole little plot twist in that show. So our opener again is Gerard Alessandrini singing from the Pirates of Penzance parody from the original Broadway cast recording of Forbidden Broadway. And our closer is Riri Grist, uh, a leapier baby singing somewhere from West Side Story. Okay, so on behalf of Michael Portantier and Jan Simpson, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's 
this week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.